When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to The Academic Life. This is the podcast for your academic journey and beyond. I'm your host, Dr. Christina Gessler, and today we're joined by Dr. Zed Ja, who's going to share with us from her blog. Welcome to the show, Zed. Hi, Christina. Thank you for having me here. I am so glad that you're here and that you're going to take us inside your blog Before we dive into that and what inspired you to start a blog, will you please tell us about yourself? Yes. So I am a uh, family doctor and a writer. Um, I'm about to start a new job at um, Yakima Valley Farm Workers Clinic in Washington State. Um, Currently, I'm finishing a 10-week writing slash research fellowship through the Massachusetts Historical Society in New England. So I'm currently located in, in New England, although my, my life and my job is back in Washington State. Um, I went to medical school at Dartmouth um, from 2012 to 2016, so I'm pretty familiar with the New England area. I did my family medicine residency at Mayo Clinic Health Systems from 16 to, 12, uh, to 19, then during the pandemic uh, years, um, I worked in eastern Washington State, um, close to close to Yakima, for three years in a federally qualified health center and migrant health center, um, working with the migrant workers and um, farm workers. Um, and um, then I came to, I went to Texas, at University of Texas San Antonio for a family medicine dermatology fellowship, twenty twenty two to twenty twenty three. And so now I'm, a, I'm in between medical fellowship and future job. And so during this time, I'm doing this writing slash research fellowship, like a short fellowship in New England. That ties in nicely to the blog post that I read, which is how I found out about your writing, which is a post you made in October of 2023 yes. that you titled, Where is Home? You have traveled a lot. You've traveled far from where you were born. Um, Where is home? (laughs) Where is home? I'll go. Yeah, I knew you were going to ask that. Um, I should have had an answer prepared. Um, So I was born and raised in Beijing, China. So um, a little bit different than where I am now. Um, And I was I, I left Beijing when I was 20 to come to the United States. And I was already in medical school in China. Um, our medical school starts after uh, high school. And I was committed for eight years of, of um, medical training at Peking University uh, in Beijing. Um, but I, I finished two years and, and I decided to come to the United States. And so I thought I could just transfer to another medical school from, from China. Um, it turns out that's not the case. Um, I, I had to repeat undergrad uh, in the United States and then apply four years later, apply for medical school. So I would say hometown is Beijing. Um, I do consider Washington State 
my home state now because uh, I just become a citizen last year. But for a while, you were finding home in a small town that you call Nowhere, New Hampshire. Yes. How did you end up in Nowhere, New Hampshire? So Nowhere, New Hampshire is a small town of just a couple thousand people. And it's close to um, my medical school at Dartmouth. Uh, Hanover is... um, is where the medical school is, but um, I decided to live a little bit far, maybe 15, 20 miles out um, in nowhere, New Hampshire, because the rent was cheaper. And uh, also, I um, I didn't mind the drive. So I, I came here, I, I, I stayed here for four years, um, very unexpectedly. Um, I didn't realize how small the town was. And, you know, con- considering that I came from Beijing, you know, where we have 20 million people, maybe more now, um, to 2000 (laughs) was a big cultural shift. You had gone to a medium-sized city for American undergrad. Is that right? Yeah. I went, I was in Omaha, Nebraska. Yeah. So it's a pretty good sized city. But you've been going through increasingly smaller. Beijing was so large. (laughs) (laughs) Omaha was... Big by some American standards, but certainly not one of our largest cities. And and now you're in a very small town and you're adjusting to another climate, um, another uh, regional culture. And when you arrive, you have a very unusual greeting from your new landlord. Do you want to <laughs> yeah. talk about driving up and what happened? Yeah. So, you know... Um... Nowhere New Hampshire is sort of just at the border uh, of Vermont and New Hampshire. So as I'm driving toward the town, um, I, I had talked to my landlord before on, on the phone, but I never met them in person. I just sort of imagined they're just, you know, um, I know they were they're older, but I didn't um, I didn't have any other preconceived notions about them. So as I was crossing the river from Vermont to New Hampshire, um, after coming off the highway, you, you come c- across that uh, big sign that says, welcome to New Hampshire, you know, that, that big sign when, whenever you cross a state. And then each state has their motto or, what, motto or whatever, you know, the, the saying. And uh, New Hampshire says, live free or, uh, or die, which I thought was pretty um, shocking. It would have the word die, you know, on the state's uh, plate. So I, cr- I thought to myself, oh, it must be a really, you know, cool, like freedom um, driven place. So I crossed the river and uh, pr- pretty much right after I crossed the river, I, I, I came to my future place. And then I, I came off the car. Um, then this um, older gentleman uh, comes out to, to uh, um, greet me holding a, a shotgun <laughs> and uh, he was wearing this shirt um, that had a Chinese character on it. Um, although I, I didn't really say what he wanted it to say, which is a pretty common thing I find in some of the t-shirts that have Chinese on it or tattoos of Chinese on it. But anyway, so he came out with his big uh, shotgun and then I thought, oh gosh, you know what, what have I done to myself? Um, I thought this was, um, Anyway, different than I, uh, a different environment, and so um, he he came and and he said he, we introduced ourselves and he's and I said oh, um, I didn't realize New Hampshire is live free or die, <laughs> and he was holding he's holding his shotgun and he says, well I think it really should be live free or kill, 
<laughs> and um, that's not actually what he like. He didn't it, it, he didn't mean to intimidate me or anything. It really wasn't like that. Later, I found out that he was out in his farm. He's got this giant farm by the river where um, he doesn't grow anything. But a lot of times there are skunks or there are, you know, like animals that come here that eat the gar- the vegetables. That There's a little garden here. And then sometimes they'll dig holes in the property that really is dis- are dis- uh, destructive. So he was out shooting the skunks. And he didn't mean, like, he didn't mean to say, um, I'm using this gun to, you know, I'm going to kill people who, you know, whatever, but it's just the, the setting as it turns out, he's a retired, um, you know, academic, academic, uh, profession professor. And, um, he was just a, he's just a very literal person. He, he, he had a dry, he has a dry sense of humor and, uh, and he says things the way they are. And we become really close later on. Um, I sort of think of them as my almost adopted uh, parents. And um, we still laugh about that initial meet and greet. And he meant his T-shirt to be welcoming or kind. What did he think it said and what did it actually say? So um, I actually... um, it It had the Chinese character... He wanted to say creative, I think maybe, but it was a big, it was one character that just says make, you know, well, you know, it's, it's kind of, it's hard to explain because one Chinese character pretty rarely uh, means any specific meaning. You usually have to pair it up with something else. You have to put it in a context in order for you to truly understand what you're trying to express. So a lot of times people get this one Chinese character tattooed or one in a big character on a t-shirt by itself. It really doesn't mean much. And so, um, but he later told me he wore this t-shirt because he knew it was a Chinese character on it and he wanted he knew I was here by myself and totally away from home. So he wanted to make me feel more at home. But it was a, a combination of that, which was, you know, but then like, I didn't know what he meant by that character. And then he was sh- sh- holding the shotgun. He was telling me about live for or kill. And that combination really was pretty shocking at first. So many mixed messages. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and you lived with them for a while and it turned out to be a time for you of unexpected, it sounds like, healing yes. um, and finding a sense of home. And that experience for you carried through in some of the ways you'd like to instruct future residents and med students about what they need to be looking for as far as making sure that they have appropriate support, that they know that they can ask for it, that it really shouldn't be taboo Mm -hmm. to talk about being overwhelmed or being concerned about your mental health. Was it really that experience there that helped you realize how important it was to start to reverse this cultural expectation, particularly in med school, that you have to seem perfect? Yeah, that's, you, you totally nailed it. Um, by by saying that by saying that you have to be perfect in, me, in medical school, and I think to me it was um, medical school is probably the hardest four years of my life. Maybe especially the first couple years, um, mostly because 
you know, medical school itself is really hard and people have the expectation that it's hard. You know, it's a lot of studying, a lot of work and a lot of non like a lot of sleepless nights. Um, it's also the social structure and the how hierarchical medical education is makes you um, makes you sort of want to fit in that uh, particular mold um, of being perfect and being always saying yes and never admitting weakness and um, always can do um, attitude. And I think, you know, I went to Dartmouth, which is a very amazing school and it gave me the opportunity that I would never have had as a as a, a international student on visa uh, to have made it to American medical school, but also Ivy League um, nonetheless. And so, but with that comes the baggage of Dartmouth is Ivy League school. And um, it is, um, we, you know, you're expected to be, to meet the standard. And I think probably deep down, many of us, or if not all of us, feel that we don't fit into this um Ivy League medical school um, ideal, but we have to, on the surface, act like we have this, we got this, and so that was that was hard um, for me. And I think the other aspect is that I, you know, I mentioned I was on visa, so um, traditionally um, it's very very hard, difficult for a international student on student visa without a green card, without citizenship to make it into a American medical school um, and still have financial um, support to the school or through, you know, obviously we don't qualify for government funding. So we do have to get private um, uh, funding for the school. So um, not many of people in my category uh, make it to Amer- uh, American medical schools. And so after making it, you know, it, then it comes, then the question is, do I, I've only been in the United States for four years by then. Um, I, I day-to-day living, you know, in America is not a problem. I can strike a conversation. I can make friends. But I think in the elitist culture of medicine, um, how, you, you sort of, take on a different persona, you act differently than off than when you're just living your life. And do I have what it takes to um, be that as well um, after having been here for only four years? And that was another layer of difficulty added to the already difficult medical school years. And then on top of that, I was not in a good place in my personal life either. Had a lot of um, uh, struggles with um, a previous, uh, um, at that time, ongoing uh, unhealthy, abusive relationship. And so breaking away from that um, and starting a new life in a small town, um, going into a school where I'm expected to perform and be perfect um, while um, struggling deep down underneath um, was just really a hard time. And so finding a home and having support was so important to me, although I did not think I was going to have it. I thought I was just going to have to stick through these four years and then, and then recuperate um, on my own, but unexpectedly my landlords and I'm calling them Bill and Lisa, although that's not their real name uh, to protect their privacy. Um, But they sort of, they made this nowhere, New Hampshire, my little apartment by the river on the farm a true home for me. Um, they were, they, you know, they checked in with me regularly. We had this, um, 
every Wednesday night dinner thing where they were just, they took such interest in, in my, in my life and my struggles. And they asked me questions that were just intended to know me, get to know me. Um, and they, um, when I could, when I struggled a lot with my, um, depression, there were days when I could, I, I couldn't leave the apartment and they noticed that and they, they come and check on me, but not in an intrusive way, but in a way that's, um, right for me. And they took care of me. They, they did, you know, Lisa did my laundry for three years, which is not to be expected by any other landlord. Um, and, uh, they fed me when I couldn't feed myself. Um, they, um, just provide a lot of emotional and, and, and literal physical support as well. So I, I think it's for anybody who's about to embark on a, on a, a journey, um, a difficult as, as medical school. Um, I, I do think it's important to have your people and sometimes your people, um, are people, um, who are, you know, they're unexpected. They're not you're maybe they're not your peers or your classmates. Maybe they're people that you didn't realize were going to be in your life and be so close to you. And that comes through in the blog posts about how important it is to be a social safety net for each other, to be lifelines for each other. You give examples of um, one time you went out for a run and it got rainy and <laughs> dark and your phone sounds like it got wrecked and you get to finally you find your way back sort of to this main road and there's a fire truck waiting for you and yes. it was really surprising to you that you were there and it seems like the fireman kind of shrugged it off he was like well bill was my science teacher and lisa made pajamas for all my kids so get in we're driving you home yeah it was like you know these lifelines that people throw out not asking um, for anything in return, it sounds like, you know, people are just being there for each other in, um, yeah, it, it, it doesn't sound like Lisa gave people pajamas, like, well, I'm going to circle back and ask for a favor later. Yeah. Um, it, it's just the way this fabric was woven that people knew when it was necessary, somebody would have your back. Yes. Yeah. And it was, uh, it's my first introduction to the small town, feel of, uh, of America. And I really love it. I, I wish, um, big cities have people who are born and raised and, and lived all their lives in big cities. I wish they knew this aspect of, uh, American life as well. But yeah, so I, um, went over a run, there's a hill, there, there's actually a cliff across the river from, um, the apartment in nowhere, New Hampshire. And, um, all you have to do is cross the river, go up on this like a mile and a half, pretty steep hike. And then you get on this cliff where you can see the river, the Connecticut river, and you can see the whole farm, the whole property. And uh, I decided to go on the run because I was about to graduate medical school at that point. I was feeling pretty good. And, and uh, I wanted to just take this last mental picture of, of, of the entire farm. I want to remember this place as, as I've come to love. So but I saw the storm coming, but I thought, you know, it's a mile and a half and I can, I can run up there and down before the storm actually hits. So I started running up and, and then as I went up, as, as, uh, as, as I'm coming, like right about when I'm coming down, the, the sky was totally dark and it was like night. And I was like, oh shoot, I'm totally in trouble. So I started going down and then the path is not well marked and it is, um, 
marked by these uh, paints, right? Uh, uh, color painting a paint on the on the tree. Of course, in the dark you couldn't see it, and the path itself is not well traveled, so it's not really a true like hiking path. And so I totally lost my way, and I did not know where I ended. I I I remember going down this hill that was so steep. I was basically sliding down on my butt this whole time, and that's how my phone got ruined. It was just like, totally wet, and and you know it was raining heavily and muddy. Then I came down to, I guess I came down um, to pretty close to the fire um, station um, in 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 that town in nowhere New Hampshire, and that must have been place people often ended up, people who are lost. And so um, this <laughs> group of firemen and fire truck were there waiting for me, and I was I was totally wet and I was this like you know little Asian girl and all these like you know white men uh in in their uniforms and with this big fair truck were waiting for me I thought I was in trouble but thankfully they came to rescue me and they were just like yeah it's not a big deal I I know where you live and and we were sent to to come and find you let's go home so when I got I thankfully I I went on the um, fire truck and and uh, I, this that was the first time I've ever written a fire truck just to go home you know and so when I got home um, I was like oh gosh I, I thank you so much you know I I was um, I don't know how to thank you and they were like oh don't worry about it we we know everyone and then as I'm coming down the fire truck. I said, Lisa was, uh, she already knew at that point that I was safe, but she was worried about me, but she, she thought it was so funny that I would do this. So as I'm coming down, she was holding her phone up. She snapped so many photos of me just being totally a wet chicken coming off of the truck and with the like firemen laughing and she was laughing. It was, it just made the situation so super laughable and now hilarious to think about, although it was pretty dangerous at the time. It made it so human. Anybody can get lost. Anybody can need help. And just that relief everybody has, they can laugh when you're finally safe. Yes, exactly. These kinds of experiences can either make us think fondly of a place or horribly of a place. You went into rural medicine on purpose. So I'm guessing that overall your experiences made you think fondly of rural America. Yes, absolutely. I've come to love rural America. And uh, that's when people, you know, it's clear when I go to a small town to practice and I, and I went to um, Othello, Washington, which is a town of 8,000 people to practice after graduating residency. It's pretty clear whenever I go I, that I'm not from there. You know, I have this slight um, Chinese accent and I, I don't look like I from around here. And so people always ask me where where's home for you and it's 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 getting more and more it's getting more and more difficult to answer that question because I've traveled so lived in so many places and I've made a home um out of every place I've stayed and and people around me help me make a home there. So it's every place I go feels like home to me. But uh, coming to, so um going to Othello Washington to practice in rural medicine um was was largely driven by my love for small town um, America and the feel of taking care of everyone like their family and literally taking care of people, people's family and your own family. Um, in, in That's something that I think the continuity 
of care in, in rural medicine is, is just so valuable. And it draws me in to work every day thinking what a privilege it is for me to be able to take care of families and generations. And so I practice um, full, full spectrum family medicine for three years in, in Othello, Washington, um, where we did um, what's called uh, the uh, cradle to the grave <laughs> medicine. You know, I, I delivered babies, took care of the um, pediatric population, you know, the, took care of the baby and the moms um, and, of course, the husbands and the family. And uh, then I took care of their parents and geriatrics. Um, then I, um, when COVID hit, we, we did a lot of hospice and so we were um, we were doing end-of-life care. We did nursing home visits. We did home visits. Um, and then we staffed the urgent, you know, um, we, we have the urgent care clinic. And, and there were times when when we had to go staff in the emergency room. Um, so, and we admitted people to the hospital f- directly from our clinic, um, sometimes or through the emergency room. And then we are the ones who, after admitting the patients, we're the ones who round and take care of them uh, in between our, our daily clinic work. And so it really had this like we were the safety network for people, you know, when I, when I say, uh, when people come to me and they feel, they feel like they're worried, you know, I'm worried about them being too sick and and that we won't be able to take care of them if they, if uh, they went home tonight. And I would just say, you know, then we will admit you to the hospital and guess what? I will be the one who, who, who's take care of you tonight, tomorrow morning, whatever, throughout the night. And I'm just a phone call away. Um, I, you know, I, li- I literally lived like less than five minutes away from the hospital day and night. We would go take care of people, deliver babies. And it's so good for people to see a familiar face where they, who, to whom they don't have to explain their entire history, family history. Um, and they don't have to in- reintroduce themselves. And, and, and we're no stranger. You know, we come in and I already know them. And it just makes people feel safe and good about the care they receive. The timing for you to get this job in Washington was complicated. You finished at the Mayo Clinic in in 2019. And in 2020, things started shutting down in the States because of the COVID pandemic. So you're in your new place practicing medicine and people have greater medical needs than they've ever experienced in their life in many cases. Yes. Yeah, that was um, bad timing for the world. Uh, 2019, so end of 2019, I started to practice. That's But that's when I saw my own country, you know, across the ocean, um, things were going down. And uh, we had this, in America, had this sort of false sense of security at that point. Um, but I knew this was going to be bad because my friends, um, many of my friends are in medical, are in medicine. So they, I know they're daily living their posts and, and I talked to them and I knew it, this was going to be bad. So when I came to, um, finally, uh, February, 2020, uh, when the pandemic was declared, I was four months into my practice as a new country doctor, just building my practice. And that's when the my CEO in, in the organization came to me and said, 
Um, Dr. Zhao, we we are facing this big pandemic. We know nothing about the virus, and you know we're we're just scrambling for resources, and we anticipate things are going to be bad. Um, would you uh, lead our COVID um, pandemic? effort. And I, and I thought, oh my gosh, I'm four months into my first real world job, you know? Um, but because of my interest in, in the virus and also, you know, just naturally because my, my home country took the first half of the battle. And also I was new to the organization. I didn't have as many clinical duties as other doctors did. And I graduated from academic centers, um, both medical school and residency. So um, I had a lot of interest in, in, in research and reading research papers. And that's when that's how why they uh, selected me to be, to be in this role. So I'd let the, uh, uh, you know, um, uh, with the, administrative leaders of the organization and together led the pandemic effort for the first six months where I think things were really bad. Um, we, we made um, protocols and, and policies from scratch um, pretty very, very early on. And I think we even though we're a small town, rural Washington, we were ahead of a lot of the bigger organizations in terms of our protection of our staff and uh, the way we took care of our patients. Um, and then when um, the height of the pandemic, we were running out of um, ICU beds in the surrounding hospitals, and, and you know our rural, little rural hospital did not have ICU. We, we we didn't have we didn't manage ventilators. We were all we're all family doctors, you know, and when when we couldn't um, transfer people out anymore, I would spend all night. Um, all night trying to transfer a sick person patient out to a surrounding hospital and there was just nobody was accepting patients. We had to manage them ourselves um, a lot of times above our comfort level, but it was either that we do it or they, that they wouldn't be taken care of. So we, we stepped up and we did, we did what we could. Um, We let patients know, you know, this is not the standard of care, but I don't think the country was having standard of care at that point anymore. But I I do what I can to take care of you. And um, we're just going to get through this together. And so I know things, I knew things were bad when um, one day, you know, I was leading the pandemic efforts. So people in the community knew that I was the COVID person um, in town and doctors knew that. And everybody who had any questions about COVID in the community or in the organization came to me. And I worked with the public health office of our county very closely. So one one day on a Saturday morning, <laughs> the county uh, public health officer calls me on my, called me on my cell phone, which is never a good sign. You know, you're like, your cell phone or texting basis with, with the public health officer um, on, on a Saturday morning, no less. And, uh, and he said, Dr. Ja, how many more ventilators can you take in your hospital? And I was like, how many more ventilators? We have zero now. <laughs> what do you mean? How many more? I could take, I could take zero more because we don't know how to manage ventilators. And so that's when I knew things were really bad. And that's when I, when I knew, you know, we really got to, we really got to step up. So we had, we organized um, an organizational wide meeting with the, with the hospital and the clinic um, about you know, what, what we're going to do if things were that bad, uh, people need ICU level care that we, that nobody else could provide. What can we do? Um, so that was one example. Another example, the, how we took care of our people in town 
um, was that we have this we have this um, long term care facility, not a nursing home, but um, uh, a long term care facility um, who were not associated with our hospital or our clinic financially or administratively, but they were in town and it's a town of 8,000 people and, and many of our own patients are in this facility. Um, so we, these are our people. And so when they had their breakout, um, their out, their outbreak, um, we knew the, the mortality rate of our whole County was about to spike because the, they've, now we're now we're facing our most vulnerable population in a congregated um, area in the nursing home in in the long term care facility. So the public health officer emailed me. I think it was on a Friday afternoon, and he said, "What well, can we can can you do something? I know you're not affiliated with them officially, but can you do something?" And so that's when he asked for help. By Sunday night that week. Um, we had a, we had already formulated a plan to take care of them 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Um, we had a group of three providers who took time, who decided, who took turns to take calls, 24 hour calls for for this nurse uh, for this facility, and every day we rounded in the facility in in our. Um, gowns and N95s. Um, and each, and we give our cell phone number to the facility. And if they needed us for anything, we drop everything we're doing in clinic, just like when we're on call for um, obstetrics. Um, we drop everything in clinic and we go see the patients there. And if, if people, if the uh, patients needed to be admitted from the uh, facility, we didn't send them to the emergency room because our, our, our emergency room was overwhelmed. We knew that our colleagues were totally overwhelmed. So we didn't do that. We just admitted them into our own care in the hospital uh, directly from the facility. So they bypassed the, uh, the, the ER where they would have waited for hours and which, you know, hours in a, in a 95 year old COVID patient was, could be life and death. And so we did that. And then um, when people said, no, I, I don't want to go anywhere. I want to, I want to die here. This is my second home. This facility is my second home. Then we said, okay, no need to wait for the two weeks of wait for being admitted for hosp- to hospice. We provide hospice for you. So we did our own hospice care there. And we, every day we took, uh, we rounded on them and took care of them from there. So I think at the end, we, 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 we didn't have an end date to this on-call schedule that we had for the facility. Um, and, um, but we, we said, we, we're committed to get you through this outbreak whatever long it takes. And so we did that. We ended up doing that for about a month, a month and a half, month, and then people got through it. And we did lose some patients, but many patients were able to take care of um, where they are. Um, but the patients we did lose, um, um, they passed at where they wanted to pass because we were able to do this. Um, and we ended up saving the emergency room um, twenty dollars to $30,000 um, we ended up saving the whole healthcare system a lot of money, but more importantly, we saved people time and, and grief and we, we saved people effort. And we took so much pride in being able to take care of our own people where they want us to take, to take care of them. Many of us who have friends or colleagues or family overseas had this epidemic on our radar, as you said, before most of the US population did. And 
it was, in my experience, an unwelcome conversation to bring up the concern that it was coming here and what what were we going to do? Was anybody else already thinking about this? For you, you had deep personal connection. Yes. And now you're in the thick of it here as well. How do you take care of your mental well-being, your emotional health um, during such a complicated time? This is when um, I, I think that this was when I started writing about my experiences. And I think writing really provided me with a lot of comfort. And uh, I was writing with I had a I have a co-author on, on, uh, on a writing project that we were doing about uh, COVID-19 and uh, being a rural uh, country doctor. And uh, her name is um, uh, Dr. Chloe Ackerman, and she is a, a psychologist. And so we, we worked on this together. So through this process, we talked a lot um, about our writing project, but in the, but the writing project is about my life. So as a result, we talked a lot about what I was going through. And, uh, you know, of course, talking to a psychologist <laughs> with the added benefit of, of almost therapeutic effect. And so that really helped me got, I get through things. And at that time, my parents were with me. They were, they traveled from China to visit me. They were going to stay um, just for a few months, but as the international travel shut down, they couldn't go home. So they were stuck with me for a year and a half. It was from, from like a two months visit to a year and a half visit. And so in, in a weird sense, um, even though at that point, um, the United States felt less safe than um, China to us, it, 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 I took comfort in having my parents close to me, uh, people I, I really um, took responsibility of. And so I, um, even though I had to isolate from them after work, we didn't have physical contact for a really long time when I was um, at the front line. Um, it was comforting to know that they, they were safe and they were with me. I was going to ask about how you were managing keeping in touch with them um, during such a complicated time. It sounds like the timing of their visit was serendipitous. If they had been planning to come even a few weeks later than they had, they wouldn't have been allowed to come. Yeah, it was a good um, in a way, in, in that way, but it was so unexpected. Imagine if your two months visit got extended to a year and a half. And, you know, their house in Beijing was, by the time they, they finally went home, was in total ruins. And, you know, the, the roof had collapsed and the, there were mold on all of their clothing. <laughs> and the bamboos from the neighbor's yard overtook their yard. It was a... Very interesting. Now we can look at it with a sense of humor, but back then it was just a crazy time. That is an unexpected outcome. Yes. You, you tend to think that if you have your loved ones near, at least you see for yourself that they are safe, they are alive. You can control what you can control in a world that seems totally out of control. And yet they go home to their sense of home and it's not waiting for them the way they expected. Not at all. Yeah, it was... Um... They sh they sent me a video of the of the yard. I thought I was in a bamboo forest. <laughs> it was a totally different thing than they expected. So, um, and then a few months later, you know, after we were, I was stuck with them for a year and a half. Um, a few months after they went home, and I was like, "Hey, mom and dad, I I miss you guys. When do you come and visit me next time?" <laughs> they were like, "Not anytime soon, honey." <laughs> they were, we were so, you know, under the same roof for a year and a half it was an interesting time.
You've mentioned that you came on a visa, um, that now you are a, a citizen of Washington State. Do you want to talk uh, in a little more detail about the bureaucratic complications that are layered onto um, students who come in from abroad? Absolutely. Yeah, I think I think that there is a, a big sense of um, um, medical superiority or injustice, um, medical education um, injustice involved in this in, in situation. You know, if the pandemic has taught us anything, it's the fact that we don't have enough doctors and we we aren't training enough of them. And but then at the same time, when people, you know, national graduates of medical school or people who are on visa um, are trying to get into medical schools or residency, we say, oh, no, you're not good enough. You, you know, we don't we prioritize our own people, um, and uh, there's no in, not enough st- um, seats for you. And oh, or if you get in, we don't have money for you. Um, and uh, or if we do have money for you, it's this super high, crazy interest um, for the loans. You know, all these added in financial burden and logistic burden and just injustice. I feel really have compromised. Um, really have like um, made the physician shortage even even worse. We have all these highly qualified people who are trying to match into our residencies and, uh, and serve our people. Um, but, but then we keep making it so difficult for them. And then it's really amplified um, that elitist um, mentality really have compromised our, our um, res- human resources during the pandemic um, for us. So I think that that needs to change. And I, g- I give you... Um, an example without, I wouldn't name any medical school names or anything, but I want to use this example as just to illustrate. Uh, when I applied for a medical school from undergrad, uh, as a, somebody who's on visa, I applied widely. You know, anybody, any school that said, that didn't specifically say, no, we do not sponsor visa, I apply for them. And that was like, you know, a, like a, Five thousand to ten thousand dollar process because you have to you have to pay for these application fees and then the secondary application fees and then you have to pay for your interview. I was interviewed at six different schools out of like the probably the fifty to eighty schools I, I applied for, um, and then I was uh, accepted into two. I eventually uh, went to Dartmouth, thankfully, um, but the the other place, other medical school, I was accepted into said the interview mean they really liked me and I liked them and they said oh um because you're international students why to think about this so they called me and they said congratulations we uh, decided to accept you into our five-year program and I said what's a five-year program for a medical school and they said oh it's for people who are on visa or who are um you know, foreigners, essentially. And I was like, what's the additional year for? And they said, oh, it's to help you learn the language and learn the culture. And I thought I had already been in the United States for four years. I spoke pretty good English. And I, if I were to really take a whole year to, uh, to get used to the culture and the language, I wouldn't go to medical school for that because it's, I could have done it so with so much less money, you know, on time, and so I so I said no, I'm I'm not interested in a five year program, but thank you very much, and so they said oh, okay, we'll think about this and we'll let let you know. And then a few days later, they called me back and they said, 
Congratulations! We we had this discussion about you, and we really like you. We wanted to come here, and we have um, ac- uh, decided to accept you into the normal four year program. And I was like, "What's there to congratulate?" You know, I I I feel like I just got told I was not my English was not good enough, or my cultural awareness was not good enough to be in the regular class, so to graduate with all the people I I went to school with, and um, now. Um, you accept me to to the quote normal class, you know, and so I said, okay, well, what's the situation with the with the fine with finances because it was a pretty expensive school, and they said, oh yeah, because you're an international student, you're on visa, we don't have any financial aids for you, and you don't qualify for the state um uh, like loans, and so we would like you to pay for the medical school um, upfront, and I said, upfront, like how. Upfront, and we're talking about, and they said, "Yeah, we, we like to you to pay for the whole four years of medical school tuition fee before you come in." And you know, medical school tuition fee, private school, easily seventy thousand a year, right? So we're looking at a two hundred eighty thousand dollars they want me to pay upfront in order to matriculate into the same school、um, as 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 U.S. citizens or green card holders. And to me, that was just insane. If I had that kind of money, I wouldn't. I wouldn't. <laughs> I tried this. You know, I I could have done many other things. I didn't have to pursue a career that's so,、um, you know, like demanding.、Um, and you know, just because I'm an international student doesn't mean I have. A lot of times, it means the opposite to having all this money. And so that was, that really made me re- think that you know, for for schools that accept. And embrace and support international students or people who are on visa or even people who are、um, not from the United States.、Um, they are they are the schools that are doing it right, and they are coming to realize that there is this valuable group of people who will contribute to to our society, our people, our medical system,、um, equally as the rest of as the citizens and and green card holders. And we need to give them a fair chance. And Dartmouth is one of them. So I'm super proud to have been.、Uh, Been、uh, gone to、uh, gone to Dartmouth Medical School. One of the things you talk about in your in your blog is that there are forty six million people living in rural America and nowhere near enough doctors. You were talking about the doctor shortage a few moments ago, but the area that you're in,、uh, rural medicine, has an enormous shortage of of doctors. Um, and you talk in your blog about the variety of things that you get to do.、Yes. Um, you've spoken earlier about the connections that you get to make and the the real appreciation people have for the role that you play in your life, and that that patients and the people in the community respect you, which is it sounds like a refreshing and healing thing because of the intense hierarchies in the medical profession itself that. You don't often come across those hierarchies unless you have to reach out to an outside specialist, and then they start talking down to you. Yes, and you're reminded of, oh, that's what I left. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So I think that、uh, rural doctors really humanize medicine in so many ways. In a way, we do. Um, in a way, we do have to because we, we're taking care of our neighbors and you know our 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 medical assistants' grandparents. You know, we're we're talking to. But I think that.、Um, It's also the real, real conversations and real healing happens between humans.、Um, the if you are a different person inside of your exam room and outside of the exam room, then 
there's something wrong with the way we're doing it. You're doing it. Um, the person who you are inside medicine should match the person who you are outside of medicine. Um, and that's what that's what humanizes the whole experience. And so in, in, a, in rural medicine, I think the rural doctors are doing, are, have figured this out. And we are, I mean, we're not like texting and Facebooking with our patients or anything like that. But when people um, see us, they, they, they think of us as, oh, you're the one who, who delivered my baby. Or sometimes they're like, you're the, you know, or like you, maybe you delivered their baby or maybe you delivered them, you know, um, uh, years ago, decades ago. And so it's a totally different feeling. Um, and I would recommend people, uh, graduates from medical school, really think about rural medicine as their career option. It's such a rewarding experience. Um, I had, um, um, I had just recently, you know, I've left the practice um, over a year ago, but uh, I um, recently received an uh, email from from a patient, previous patient, and she said she's about to give birth to her third baby. And I delivered her first and second. Um, and uh, she was telling me how, you know, she wished that uh, I was there um, for her third baby. And I, I, I thought to myself, gosh, what I, I, I wish I, would, I could be there for her and for her baby. You know, she, she's a pro at this. So I just sort of show up and she does her own thing. And uh, I just catch the baby. I don't really actually, in, if all goes well, um, it, it's, it's, it, that part is easy job. Um, but how much do I wish that I could be there for her and continue to be there for her and for generations to come to, for like future baby, whatever, to go, to walk through life, um, the life of healthcare and navigate the system alongside her and her family. Um, I really, I, I would, uh, I love, I would love that more than anything. And so I think that's the draw and that's the beauty of, um, primary care in rural areas, you are, you get to be there with people, for people throughout their lives and in, in their family. That takes us back full circle to the stories you shared about Bill and Lisa, about the ways that people have your back. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And I, I, I'm, um, about to start a new job in, in Yakima, Washington, and I'm hoping this would be my, um, new home. And I, I want to have a, I hope to have a long career there and really have my own, you know, have a um, patient population practice. And so I can, I can be part of people's home base in healthcare for them. You spoke a few moments ago about the high cost of this level of education. College is expensive. Graduate school is expensive. Often, even if we get a lucrative fellowship or residency, we still have out-of-pocket expenses. You talked about expenses of going on interviews, of application fees, of hidden fees. Um, for international students, their visas come with fees. Um, when you choose a job after graduation, a lot of us are looking at either debt we've accumulated or the fact that we haven't been accumulating any savings or retirement funds at the time we're embarking on our career. And we're looking at our thirties thinking, Oh no, <laughs> how much time do I have to save up for anything? Will I ever have a house or a condo or go on a vacation? And all of these things factor into what jobs we think we can take. While you say in one of your blogs that talking about money is still fairly taboo in the, in the medical 
field as it is in most jobs and for most um, women professionals. Yes. We don't feel like we're supposed to talk about money. You do want to urge people to look into what these rural jobs pay because they they pay more than people think yes. that they do. And people may be dismissing them out of hand like, yep. I'd love to do that, but I can't afford to essentially have a volunteer job that pays my rent. <laughs> yeah. Yep. I agree. I think, I think that um, one, one thing I would like to point out about, about uh, working in a federally qualified health center as a person who is not a citizen and who did not have government loans is that we, so I did not qualify for loan repayment for, uh, for my job. Now, a lot of people, unfortunately, many people go to rural medicine and working for federally qualified health center FQHCs to get their loans paid off through the government uh, program, like loan repayment program, uh, which is good for them. Uh, but the fact that we, that international people who have private loans and because we don't qualify for state loans, um, do not qualify for this type of loan repayment in itself is a total injustice. A kick us back to, um, I set us back so many years of our professional life compared to our peers. In the meanwhile, you know, I'm in rural medicine. I feel like, you know, I went to a good school. I went to a good residence program. I provide good care. I think I provide good care for my patients, evidence-based care. Um, I work as hard as anybody else, if not harder, um, I was on call all the time for three years. My, my cell phone was never off, um, you know, day and night we worked. And at the same time, I was precepting uh, provider, new providers, um, you know, physician, uh, advanced practitioners, physician assistants or uh, nurse practitioners who are new out of school and, um, and precepting them, um, teaching many of them um, topics that did not get uh extensively touched on during their training, which is, which is a privilege. Um, for me, I really enjoy that. But, you know, doing that while they talk about how their loans would be get, would be t- paid off uh, by the government program um, in a few years of being here. And, you know, what is that, how does that make me feel as their preceptor, their teacher, um, working just as hard, if not harder, um, taking more clinical responsibilities uh, while getting none of the the loan repayment benefit. I think that really needs to go because it really sets us back. It's it's a financial punishment for us, for those of us who want to stay and serve the people who need us. Um, but that said, if you are in the situation where you do qualify for the loan repayment program, you know, um, rural medicine has offered a lot of uh, FQHC um um, clinics where where you do in a few years, usually in one or two contract of time, you get your loans um, paid off, which is a huge uh, advance um, advantage of, of working there. Um, in the, at the same time, of course, like the living expenses in the rural areas is a, a lot less than the are a lot less than urban area, so that's another advantage. And uh, because of the shortage of doctors, especially family medicine or primary care in rural areas, um, the the salaries, uh, in my experience, are actually more, sometimes a lot more than our urban um, provider like peers. Um, and the sign-on bonus is a lot bigger. Um, and there's a lot more room to negotiate as well, which negotiation, they don't teach us in medical school or residency for negotiation, but it's, it's something that everybody should, should learn how to, especially women, talk about our worth, our values. And so in that sense, we could be, we could be making sometimes twice as much as 
our if you uh, as uh, our urban colleagues uh, do. So I think that is a, that's something that we don't talk about enough. And it, of course, maybe we don't want to. We don't want to say, you know. Of course, we we don't go to rural medicine just for the money. We it, it's a it's a hard job and it's a it's a tough lifestyle. It's rewarding, but it's tough, and so you do have to have a heart for people like that. Um, but at the same time, the financial aspect we we should emphasize that it's a it's it could be an advantage if you're if that's what you're interested in doing. And it has the hidden advantage that I hope that we've we've brought out of the hidden curriculum today that in rural medicine it's not only allowable to be yourself but it's a way to build patient trust if you are um I shared off air about having lived in a on an island in New England and (laughs) my doctor was his quirky self uh in the exam room at the grocery store wherever you ran into him and that actually helped me trust him. As you've mentioned, these doctors are highly trained, incredibly smart, very competent. He was one of the best physicians I've ever had in my life. And it's two truths. I think part of why he was able to give me that excellent care is because I was able to trust him enough to tell him what was going on. Yes. Yes. I, you know, I think that it's, it's, um, We've come, we've come to this point of medicine where we define a good doctor by their credentials and by their training, by where they graduated and uh, how many papers they published. In a way, that is true. But when it comes to patient-doctor relationship, um, a, a good doctor is the one who listens to the patient, but also, believe, also believes the patient, right? You know, somebody who who doesn't assume the patient is here for a hidden agenda or to get what they want, but patient, but people who doctors who know the patient, who trust what, what they're saying, who, 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 who know that the patients themselves are the experts of their own bodies and their own embodied experiences. Those are, that's the number one requirement for being a good doctor and having a good doctor physician relationship and I think in rural medicine, because of the the nature of it, um, we we do that better than better than a lot of other people. And so I think that really makes us uh, makes that relationship a lot tighter and uh, more a lot more friendly. And as a result, um, dare I say, it makes us better doctors. We're starting to run out of time. In the few minutes we have left, I want to ask you. What do you hope this episode sparks for listeners? I hope that this episode really advocates for um, being a country doctor and the reward that comes with it, um, both both emotionally, career-wise, professionally, and financially. And I want to encourage more graduates um, and medical people people who are going to medical school to think about that as a career path and know that there's such a closeness and such a um, humanism in rural America in general and rural medicine and what a privilege it is to be able to participate in that and be the doctor, the country doctor that people rely on. It's just a um, the most incredible experience. Um, and, and, you know, and if you want to do more academic side of things, you know, I, pub- I published papers too, did research on the side and taught students and we had residents from big schools and such. It's something that's doable. Um, but if that's what you love, um, 
I highly encourage people to do it. Thank you so much for being here today, Dr. Zed Ja, and taking us inside your blog and through your journey into medical school and into your career. I'm Dr. Christina Yesler, and you're listening to The Academic Life. I hope you will please join us again.